fall into the theology bit. everyone welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit because as you know when you fall into a bottomless pit you will die of dehydration dehydration before starvation always remember that so hey watch out for any of those bottomless pits now we are in our salvation series if you're listening to this podcast and you're listening to it at a later date this is podcast episode number 21 for salvation. And it's mostly, maybe I kind of mistitled uh, the series because it's not so much salvation that I've been discussing as it is specifically justification. Now, that might sound like it's splitting hairs, but if you've been listening up to this point, you realize that it's not. Because salvation deals with past, present, and future, where justification is just a past issue most of the time. The reason why I titled it Salvation is because we're broadly looking at how one is made right with God. And some views, as you well know, look at justification as a past and present thing or progressive justification, just like a progressive sanctification. But the way that I've been breaking it up has been very reformed. In, in the fact that I look at salvation as three parts. You have justification, sanctification, and then glorification. Um, so by focusing on justification and just calling this series justification wouldn't have been a very good idea because it's what I'm viewing as a past thing. Some people are looking at it as a present thing, and I've had to discuss some... Uh, present salvation applications also. And so just calling it salvation as a whole is probably, you know, a better thing to do. Now, you know, this is 21 and we've gone over all of the different views that I wanted to cover when it came to the different theories of um, the application of the atonement. But I want to go over a couple more that 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 deal with it to flesh some of these things out um, in, in discussing Arminianism today, and I'm going to probably within the next couple pits, I'm guessing, talk about my own uh, soteriology, my own study of salvation, my own understanding of it, and the logical walk that I have, having all this knowledge of everything in the past, but. We're going to discuss Arminianism because it has a big influence. Now, Arminianism is very popular. Um, I would say not only is it popular because of... um, the different theologians out there that discuss it and the different denominations that hold to it. But to be honest, Arminianism, broadly speaking, is probably one of the easiest comprehensive um, soteriologies to deal with. And I'm just using Arminianism as a salvation understanding. The reason why is because it's it's very rational in its approach. And not to say that the other ones are irrational. 
Of course, I have problems with Armenianism. Um, I, I find it to be incomplete, as I found all the other ones to be incomplete as well. Um, I've been reading up and studying Arminianism for about the last month, maybe five weeks, um, reading books by uh, Roger Olson, listening to a lot of Arminian podcasts, and just saturating myself as much as I possibly can because I want to, not being an Arminian, just like with Roman Catholicism or straight Lutheranism or Calvinism, I want to try and give it its best representation here. And I know what you're thinking. Well, you didn't do that with the Anabaptists. I, I, I tried to, but it was it's difficult to defend. To be honest, I have, I have a hard time defending um, that type of, of approach. It's just, it's very foreign to me uh, to, to defend a, a, a system of belief that is almost Jedi in a way. Um, I, that probably came across like really bad, but I'm, I'm just going to skip over that. I'm just going to say, I acknowledge with Anabaptism, I was probably not very fair with it and you should probably go somewhere else to find a, a fair assessment of it. I'm not going to go back and revisit it, but if I ever do write all this stuff out and make a study out of it or a book out of it or something like that, I will be a lot more fair to the Anabaptist than I was in these podcasts. Um, the way I know that I have sufficiently saturated myself with Arminian doctrine is that I can find myself in Bible studies thinking with an Arminian mindset. What I mean by that is people will say something and I'll hear kind of those buzzwords and those sort of little things. Now, I go to a church and primarily the people around me are let's say broadly Calvinistic. Okay. So there's not a lot of Arminianism there. So when I do hear someone that is talking with like, let's, let's say an Arminian dialect, it does perk my ears up. I, I do notice that, but whenever we're, we're in a study and I mean, I'm in a couple different studies at church. I, um, I volunteer with the youth also. Um, and before, uh, we, you know, work with them, we have a small little like 15 minute Bible study. And so I have that, and then I have uh, you know my Wednesday night one that I've talked about also, and it's primarily Calvinists, and I and I listen to what they say, and I can hear myself saying, "But what if that's not right? But what if that's not true? But what if that's the not the proper way to think about that? What if that's not the right way to interpret that? What if there's a different way? What do you think about this? I don't." I don't say anything or I try not to say anything, but most of the time I don't say anything because I understand that it's because I've been saturating myself with a particular doctrine and a particular viewpoint that I'm thinking in this particular way. Now, when I did the um, two podcasts on Roman Catholicism, I was the exact same way. I would sit in the Bible studies and I would think as a Roman Catholic and I, I could answer, excuse me, as a Roman Catholic. And that I think helps me in the long run because I'm able to do that. And then afterwards I, I kind of, you know, decompress with it and I, I formulate my thoughts and I understand the strengths and weaknesses of each one. And that's why I don't hold really strongly to any one of them. Um, I, I do have something, I mean, I, maybe, when I, when I talk about mine and I spell everything out and I kind of walk through everything, 
someone out there will say, oh, no, what you hold to is the plus, whatever it's going to be. And, you know, you could email me or you know, send me a message somehow saying, oh, you need to read this person. You need to read that person. You need to look into this or check into that. And uh, maybe it, it'll have a name. But um, Arminianism as a whole uh, modern Arminianism, today's Arminianism, and there's there's two different kinds we're going to uh, talk about, but it is, in my opinion, easy to understand because it can rationally make sense. Um, we don't have the problems that uh, Calvinism would have, and I, and I, I know that I said we. Uh, it doesn't mean that I really do uh, hold to it. That just means that, you know, that's just the way that my, my brain is kind of thinking right now. So I'm going to do my best to speak as an Armenian here. Now, in order to really understand Arminianism, we have to revisit Calvinism a little bit. I'm not going to go into any depth with it. It's a lot of it's been coming out in the podcast and, and you know, you can read that or listen to that and, and check them out. But Arminianism is a response generally to Calvinism. And specifically, I'm going to look at the TULIP Calvinism. And the TULIP is the acronym T-U-L-I-P. And each letter stands for a particular doctrine within uh, Calvinist understanding. And Arminianism generally, modern Arminianism is... A, I don't want to say the opposite. I don't want to say, um, you know, anything to say that it's like the flip side of it, but let's just say that it is a more accurate improvement. It is a, a thought system that was able to take the time to look over what had been said and look at it critically and objectively. And through that critical and objective viewpoint, it was able to say, I don't think that this is necessarily what God is saying through his word or through our experience or any type of revelation, whether it be general revelation or special revelation that God has given us. And the first place that we have to start at, and we, we've talked about this a little bit because of, because of free will. Now, not, and this is what, this is what gets really, really sticky when we, when we talk about free will, it's not that everybody defines free will in the same way. I, if you remember in the podcast where we, we talked about free will, we talked about there being libertarian free will. That means the ability to go against your greatest desire. And that was on one end. And on the other end of the spectrum was um, a, a total deterministic understanding that if we don't have free will, well, then basically we're automatons. We are basically robots. And in the middle, there was something called complementarianism. Now, what I've noticed is that a Calvinist will explain his understanding or her 
uh, it was explained, they'll under, they'll explain their understanding of free will from a compatibilist standpoint. And what they might be doing is actually describing determinism, but calling it compatibilism. Arminians may go the opposite way and say, well, we believe in free will and they'll call it free will, but they might be, you know, explaining it in a more of a compatible, well, I should say that they would be explaining it as a compatibilist. Okay. They would say we have free will and it's this, and they're describing compatibilism. And sometimes I've noticed that the definitions overlap, but the terminology does not. So whenever an Arminian says that we have free will, uh, what they're saying is that we have, um, how's it, how's it worded? Uh, like a contra-conscious choice that we're able to choose. We just have the ability to choose, okay? Now, you know, different um, church fathers and theologians have said different ways of what that means, that, um, you know, like uh, St. Augustine, for example, said, of course we can choose. We can choose evil or evil. Like, that's our choice. Whatever We're going to choose either one, but it's always going to be evil. Um, but they would say, no, that we have the ability of, of choosing freely and that this is called uh, free will, okay, that it's a little bit different in its understanding of, um, of how we've defined free will. So we're going to take that understanding. So when I talk about free will, what I mean is the ability to choose between two things. And when it comes to God and when it comes to the gospel, it specifically is between choosing good or evil or between choosing God or rejecting God. Now, the way we get to this point, we have to deal with original sin. And this is where we come to the, the T in tool up, the first part of it. And that's total depravity. It's also been called um, total inability. Um, total depravity is defined as humanity has fallen into a state of radical corruption that has affected every aspect of who we are. The Imago Dei, or the image of God, has been marred but not destroyed. So... To say that we are totally depraved is to say that we are totally enabled. We, are, we have no ability to choose whether or not we want to search for God or whether or not we want to follow Christ or whether or not we want to accept the gospel. Okay. Now, Arminians would hold to a partial depravity. But not all. This is actually one of the places where some Arminians split. Um, some would say that, yes, we do have a partial depravity. And that whenever we fell, the effect of original sin, we were not dead. We were not unable to choose anymore. We still had that ability. It was just corrupted. And because of the bad example of Adam... 
it stayed corrupted. And we learned that bad example and we learned the bad example and we ju- it just perpetuated. And that's why we are depraved. But we're also dead, so we have a total inability. Okay, With the Armenian perspective of partial depravity, some Armenians would say, well, I agree with the total depravity aspect of it, but I would say that you are not completely dead. You are only separated from God. And through His grace... And the forgiveness of sins because of Christ, you then have the ability to accept or reject. Now, there's a camp of Arminians that holds to what's called prevenient grace. And this is that God has given this to every single person in the world. And this is a grace that comes in. And if you are more inclined because of the fall to choose evil or reject God. And it's because of the fall that you're making this choice. What God does is he comes in and he balances the scales. So you're not leaning one way or another. Some would say that this happens whenever the gospel is presented. These scales are balanced. Others would say it is a continuous, constant call, a constant thing that is occurring so that you can even look to nature which is general revelation, and say, oh, wow, there is a God. I am not doing right. I I recognize that, you know, I have have a problem, those sort of things. Now, Roger Olson, um, in his book that I, I just finished called Against Calvinism, he states in there that what Christ's, atonement did on the cross, his death on the cross covered everybody with, from original sin. It took the sting of original sin away. It washed away the original sin. It got rid of the original sin. And the original sin is what is keeping us from choosing God. So the doctrine of provenient grace is akin to infant baptism as a sacrament within the um, Eastern churches, the Western churches, uh, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, uh, some Presbyterians. It's that washing away of original sin. Okay, now they have, of course, more uh, emphasis on it because there is, there's more to it than just that in those um, denominations that I just mentioned. But with Arminianism, um, it's it, it's not that that's pretty much what's holding it there. That's pretty much it. And the reason why we think this is because it seems as though we have free will. We have the ability to choose, not because of any type of personal experience, even though personal experience is extremely important. And I would have to say that if you claim 
that you have an ability or something, but it's not a personal one that you hold on to. It's it's difficult to, to say. It's not one that you experience. It's like, well, well, what is it exactly? So the fact that everyone seems to experience the ability to choose good or choose evil, to accept Christ or reject Christ, to accept the gospel, to reject the gospel, I think that that is a big a big factor. I think that if you, if you had your, let's, let's call it a veracity compass and you had it out and that that would be towards your North pole and the arrow would just be pointing towards that and saying, look, all of the Bible, all of the old Testament seems to assume that man has the ability to choose good or evil. He's, He's judged and talked to and treated by God as though the sins that he commits are his own. Now, Calvinists, you know, would come back and and say, well, no, I mean, people do have a responsibility for their sin. And, you know, as an Arminian, you would say, well, no, if they are able to respond, then they would have to have free will in order to do that. Because if you tell someone that they are totally depraved and that there is nothing that they can do about it whatsoever, unless God comes in and changes them, saves them, makes all these things happen, it's not their fault. It's God's fault. If you tell someone who is a sinner that the reason why you don't believe is because God didn't choose you and he doesn't want you, they would say, well, fine. If God doesn't want me, I don't want him. You know, I reject him because he first rejected me. And that can become problematic. Um, If you have this understanding of... You know, you totally don't have any ability. So God, more or less, is arbitrarily choosing people in order to save them. And according to Calvinistic doctrine, we go back to the decrees that we talked about, the uh, superlapsarianism, that, you know, God decreed to make man, God decreed man to fall. So now you say, and with double predestination, God decreed you know, some to go to hell and some to go to heaven. But you're, you're saying that, I mean, on the easiest way to understand it, or the lightest way, I should say, God created mankind, okay? And then God decreed that mankind would sin, okay? God said mankind will sin, and then... God said, I'm only going to save a few. Why? What, what kind of God is that? What kind of God is it who has the power, has the ability to save everyone if he wanted to? You know, I mean, he, he desires everyone to be saved. Why doesn't he save everyone? Why does he decree, if he decrees for man to fall, then he has decreed everyone to go to hell. And then he chose some 
to go to heaven. And some people say, yes, but he passively allowed those he didn't choose to go to hell. So he's not sending them to hell. No, if he decreed for man to fall, he's sending them to hell. There's no way around that. Okay. Understand this. Now, if God decreed for man to fall or allowed mankind to fall, and he only elected some, on what basis is he electing them? If you're saying that he is electing them for no good reason whatsoever, just because, just because he wants, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. We don't know why. This brings us to our you and tool up unconditional election. That it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how good you are, how much you try, how much you search, how much effort you put in, nothing. How many people witness to you, uh, anything at all. You will never be good enough because it's not based on anything you do. Election is completely unconditional. Well, then why would God say things like choose this day whom you may serve? Within Arminianism, election is conditional. And the condition of that is responding to the gospel. This is why we need to take the gospel and explain it to everyone and take it all over the world because the gospel is the good news. It's what saves people. It is what God uses to empower people in order for them to make the decision and put their faith and their trust in Christ. Okay? Christ is seen as the elect. And all who are found in Christ are elect. It's like with with Israel, okay, in the Old Testament. They were the elect. They were the chosen one. Now, was this just people who God arbitrarily chose, this nation? No, because it's not individual choice. It's a group. Now, could somebody who was not of Hebrew descent become an Israelite? Well, yes. Yes, it's in the Old Testament. And that happened. People did that. It was not a problem. People could join. People could come in, just like in the church today. People can come in. People can accept Christ. Jesus Christ is whom God elected. So with this type of election, it is those who are found in Christ. If you want to say that Christ was unconditionally elected, I would say, well, perhaps because he is God incarnate, but... Christ earned our salvation through, through the death on the cross and his resurrection. He is the elect. He is our federal head. He is the new Adam. We agreed with Adam in sin, identifying ourselves with him. Now we can agree with Christ and in his righteousness that then becomes our righteousness. Okay. Do you understand how liberating and how free that is that you don't have to worry. Oh, am I, am I elect or not? I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure this way. You can be sure you can say, yes, I've made the decision. I'm going to follow Christ. And in some Armenian churches that is, is also accompanied with a visible public profession and water baptism to show that I'm washing away the old 
and I am a new creation, as scripture has said. Now, I know that a lot of Calvinists will come out and talk about, um, in the book of Romans, I think it's chapter 9, where they talk about um, Jacob and Esau, where God says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. Before they were born, before they did anything good or bad. Now, you're trying to tell me that God hates people? That he created people just to hate them, just to send them to hell? Are you sure that you're understanding that passage properly? Are you sure that that passage is not talking about two types of people? Paul uses illustrations through his writings. He talks about, in the book of Galatians, about Sarah and Hagar. And he talks about you know them being two nations, the, the, the free woman and the slave woman, the free people and the slave people. And he says in Galatians that those who are found in Christ are of the descendants of the free woman of Sarah. Okay? They are not the slave ones of Hagar. And Hagar, of course, birthed Ishmael. And um, Sarah birthed Isaac. Um, Now, the Jews at the time would say, well, we are of Isaac. We are not of Ishmael. And here... Paul, you know, is saying, well, no, 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 you are actually of Ishmael because of your wanting to keep with the law, wanting to continue to be a slave. Okay. He wasn't talking about them individually. He's talking about them allegorically. He's saying, no, look, these are representation of two ideas. Okay. Something that binds you in slavery and something that sets you free. The same thing is going on in Romans 9 with, with uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, Jacob, whose name gets changed later to Israel after um, wrestling with, with the angel all night long, um, and, and his, you know, his hip is put out of socket, and he's given the name Israel. This is the, the people, and now you have Esau, who was his brother, who, let's be honest, Jacob, you know, stole his birthright. I mean, some people argue about that, say, no, he gave it up, but whatever, Jacob was a trickster. And, you know, Esau and those two families, even though Jacob and Esau reconciled, you know, at the end, their families, their descendants did not. And they are warring. Now, today, if you want to look at these lineages, let's say, the, the people who claim to be the descendants of Ishmael today are people who are Muslims. The Muslims claim that they are of Ishmael. And if you know anything about Islam, who do the Muslims and who, do the, who does the Islamic faith hate, passionately hate? It's the Jews. They hate the Jews so much. that I mean, that's what they talk about in in the Quran, when you when you read through it, it talks about the people of the book. And the people of the book can mean either Christians or Jews, and they do make the distinctions. But modern-day Islam is very much wanting to wipe Israel, wipe the Jews off the face of the planet. Um, some nations even say, uh, we're going to start with Saturday and work our way to Sunday, meaning we're going to take out the Jews and then we're going to take out the Christians. There is this huge animosity to this day between these two these two families. 
God is saying that here are the people that I have blessed, the ones that I am bringing the Messiah through, okay? My chosen people, my elect, the descendants of Isaac, okay? The descendants of uh, uh, Jacob, rather, of of, uh, Israel, and them I love. The descendants of Esau, because of their persecution and their hatred for them, them I hate. So it's not individuals that God is electing. It is a group. And even though, I mean, it's, it's corporate in the sense, but it's a group and it's also individualistic because the individuals that make up the group. When we looked over the, um, the, the Passover, when we were talking about the, the podcast on why Roman Catholics believe that they are eating the body of Christ and where that comes from and why it's viewed as necessary. And we went through Exodus and we discussed, um, you know, the, the liturgy of uh, the Passover meal that's, that's given in Exodus and what the, the male father figure, the federal head, the head of the household is saying to his son. And, you know, while they're, he's telling the story, he is personifying it, not as we do this to remind ourselves to remember that God has brought us out of slavery. When we were slaves in Egypt for 400 years and he brought us out, we do this to, to remind us of that. No, it's that he brought me out of slavery even if this is generation after generation after generation away. It doesn't matter. It is corporate in the election, and it's also individual because that individual was found to have done what God asked and what God requires. And his election was conditional during the Passover, just as it is today. God does not change. Okay? He is immutable. He is beyond the ability to change. change. So what this means is that the atonement is not limited, which is the L. The, The limited atonement is the belief that Christ only died for the sins of the elect. Okay. Arminianism holds to a universal atonement. It's unlimited. It means that anyone found in Christ, it doesn't matter. Christ's death was sufficient enough for the entire world. The call is broad and huge. It's to go out. Anybody, anybody can come under this atonement. Okay. It is not simply limited only to those who God has chosen. It is not a particular redemption. It is a complete Redemption, a redemption of mankind as a whole, not a bunch of individual people. Okay. I know that a lot of people are going to say, well, I mean, couldn't God just make it exact? Because he knows how many people, I mean, there is an exact number of how many people will be saved. I mean, it's not a number like you find in the Bible or anything like that. It's that at the end of the age, you know, Whenever um, the end of time comes, the end of days, all that stuff. And, um, you know, God knows the number of how many people are. There, There is an actual number. 
And he could say, well, Christ died particularly for that number. No more, no less. Well, this is saying, I mean, come on, let's be honest. That's kind of ridiculous. God would just say, no, I am so greater than that. I show my greatness by my abundance in the cup overflowing. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So, so far now, we have been through three parts of the tulip been through total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. More can be said on all of those, of course. Now, there are some Armenians that do hold to a um, a total depravity, okay? And a lot of times they're called whiskey Calvinists. And the reason why they're called whiskey Calvinists, and I I always thought that was funny, is because they... um, they, they hold to one-fifth of Calvinism. So a fifth of Calvinism is what, you know, you know kind of why they say it's, it's a whiskey, um, you know, it's a, a whiskey Calvinism because they hold to a fifth. I, I thought that was kind of clever. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, now, also on the um, Calvinist side, you would have people who would be considered four-point Calvinists, which means out of the tulip, um, they would hold to the total depravity, they would hold to the unconditional election, they would hold to what we're going to get to, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. But they would not hold to limited atonement. Okay, uh, These people uh, are called... Um, Amaral, it's it's called Amaraldism. I think I'm never I never pronounced that right. Moses Amarat is a 16th century French theologian who developed this, also known as moderate Calvinism. Uh, so Amarat Amaraldism, I, I suppose that would be the proper pronunciation of it. They would you know take that that you know section out of there with that limited tome and just say, look, we just don't see it. In scripture, that it is that individualistic and that, you know, that's it. So, like I said before in other podcasts, if you're listening to these and you're saying, hey, I'm an Arminian and I don't agree with this stuff, all right, or I'm a Calvinist and I don't agree with this stuff, I understand, you know, because there are different flavors and some people mix and match. And honestly, some people may not know. Um, Some people may think, well, I guess I'm a Calvinist because that's all I've ever heard, which could be true enough. And other people would say, well, I'm an Arminian because that's the way that I was raised. And they've never really looked at one or the other. And what I find interesting is that people, a lot of times, if they're an Arminian, would say, if you're a Calvinist and you never looked at Arminianism, you really need to. Because Arminianism, like the Southern Baptist churches, um, would not hold to a like Wesleyan holiness type of Arminianism. 
or even a provenient grace type of Arminianism. They could hold to a total depravity and say, I'm, you know, we're totally cool with that. You know, we're, we're whiskey Calvinists. We don't have a, a problem with that. And um, you can have others that are Calvinists that say, you know what, this whole limited atonement thing, eh, I think it's more broad than that. I think it all kind of, you know, goes out uh, to everybody. And it's, it, it's something where everybody has the chance and has the ability to, um, to respond to. And that makes sense. That it wouldn't just be because what can be the problem if you hold to a limited atonement, strictly limited atonement? The problem is missions breaks down. You start to get people that get lethargic because why? Well, why should I bother witnessing if God wants them to be saved? Well, he's going to do it, right? So whether or not I do it doesn't make any difference. Um. God, if I don't do it, God will send somebody else. If I do it, you know, then, okay, you know, that's God prompting me to do it. But you can get kind of lazy, slothful with that. If there isn't the urgency that people have to hear, well, then why would you push for that kind of urgency? Yeah, focus on focus on our, ourselves. Let's focus on our, you know, um, not our apologetics, but our, you know, our, our polemics or our irenics or, you know, just us, our discipleship. Where if you hold to an unlimited atonement or universal atonement that God made it possible for everyone to come to faith in Christ, you're going to be on fire for missions. You're going to say... You know, Paul was right. Why is it that, you know, all of the Old Testament, there seems to be such an emphasis on going and telling people? Why is it that, you know, Paul said, how can they hear if no one goes to tell them? How I mean, he goes through that, that you know, that, that spiel there. You know, if there's no one, to, if there's no one to preach, who's, who's going to hear? You know, you have to go to them. You have to take the gospel to them. The gospel seems to be organic. You know, just like the sin of Adam was passed down from person to person, the good news of the gospel is going out by the power of the Holy Spirit working through people. Cornelius' house, whenever, you know, he's a God-fearer, angel appeared to him and said, said, you know, send for Peter. He's meditating on top of the tanner's roof. And Peter came and was just like, you know, it's not lawful for me to be here. You know, because you're a bunch of Gentiles and I'm a Jew and you guys are dirty, disgusting dogs. And, you know, Peter was you know, pretty much a bigot. Um, why didn't the angel just tell them? Why did Peter have to, to tell them? Why is it always that the gospel has to be this organic thing? You know, it's never that it's delivered in the way that you would think that, you know, Angels who are messengers, I mean, it's the word angel is in the word evangelical. If they're the messengers, why aren't they telling people? Well, it seems the gospel is organic. We are to be our brother's keeper. We are to do this. We are to focus not on ourselves. 
if God did it through angelic messengers or anything like that, well, we can just sit there and be self-centered. We can just focus on ourselves. We don't have to care about other people. We don't have to care about other things. We can just do that. That's what, you know, Paul was kind of railing against in the book of Galatians. And the free, I don't even know how to, how to say it. The law really imprisoned us. Whenever you think about how you have to keep all the law. And when Christ came, we're under grace and grace is freeing. We no longer have to worry about, oh, I have to do this and I have to do that. And I got to make sure that I do all these rituals and I do all this stuff. And no, I'm in Christ. I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know what I can focus on? My neighbor. I can focus on my fellow man. I can go and I can actually help people because... The atonement is unlimited. I could be a Billy Graham and go out and spread it through the world. I could make podcasts and try to reach as many people as possible. I could do my very best because the entire world is a harvest field. Seeds need to be planted. It needs to be watered. It needs to be harvested. It need, fruit needs to be bare. There's all kinds of reasons and emphasis on going out and doing it. If you hold to the atonement being limited, it stunts that understanding. It may be right in the sense that there is a number but it's, it's, it's wrong in the way that, in, in, in what it's producing in the theology of, uh, of a lot of Christians. Irresistible grace is the next aspect in the tulip. And it's also called effectual grace. This is God, again, sends out his grace to people and they cannot resist it. They become Christians. If this is true, why is the whole world not Christian? Is God so powerful that he can only save so many doing this? The grace that he sends out, it is resistible. Now, when we talk about justification, and I'm I'm kind of taking off my Arminian hat here, a lot of times within Arminianism, and I, I said this before with, with people not understanding the doctrine of justification, Arminianism most generally tends to break justification into two parts. And justification consists of the forgiveness of sins and the making right with God, the righteousness, making someone righteous, declaring them to be righteous. Those are the two things. Within Arminianism, I've noticed that that gets split in half and that the doctrine of justification is more seen as, and I, I really don't hear it talked about a lot because they focus a lot on the eternal decrees. They focus a lot on free will and they focus a lot on you know total depravity uh, whenever they're structuring their arguments and whatever they're talking. That seems to be the biggest kind of thing that they go towards. Justification seems as forgiveness of sins only. 
that, that particular doctrine is just forgiveness of sins. The, once the sins are forgiven, that is then where you are then able, because sin is out of the way, to then make that choice. And the sin being removed is what I would think that they would say is forensic. But the righteousness aspect, I would say, is something that seems to be characterized as sanative. Okay? It is, it is a, a gratia infusa. It is a grace that is infused within you that then allows you to, to do something. And that that you know, takes away sin. It's, it's never articulated in the way that I would like it to be in order to discuss it. It always seems kind of glossed over. But there does seem to be a separation in the forgiveness of sins is what God does in order to make it so that you can freely respond. He's reinstating your free will or he is, um, how should I say, uh, balancing your scales, making you right, fixing what needs to be fixed, what went wrong, fulfilling the promise in Genesis when he says that he will make things right. And through Christ, that's what he has done. Um, so they would look at that and they focus big time on forgiveness of sins. All right, it's forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ said. When the gospel is given to you, you know, this, this grace has gone out and it's, it's this grace that allows you to be able to make this decision, whether that grace, and again, you know, with the different types of Armenianism out there, one could say that it was a grace that was immediately given, um, almost like a, think of it as a, a protection from sin in a way, if, if you know your Mariology at all. Um, and we, we've discussed St. Anne um, a little bit when we talked about Martin Luther, Mary's mother. Um, Mary um, was immaculately conceived, meaning that um, she was conceived not in the same way that Christ was by the Holy Spirit, but she was immaculately conceived in that she was separated from original sin so that there would be a pure vessel for Christ to come through. Because, um, you know, you just have to keep pushing it back or try and make a, an understanding why within Roman Catholicism, I mean, I have my own understanding of this, but make an understanding of how it is that, you know, Christ did not have this type of sin, you know, this original sin that we struggle with, why he didn't sin, why he was sinless. Um, if we're sinned from conception, if we're sinned from birth, you know, I mean, those sort of things. So much in the same way that the understanding of Mary being immaculately conceived, this is sort of like an immaculate grace that had been given to stop the effects of sin in this area. So that that's the grace that's given, but the grace that comes from the gospel through Christ, that is the grace that is resistible. The other one is not. So that if you do sin and if you do reject God, well, then it's all on you and you're the one sending you to hell 
but the choice is freely there for you to accept. Now, the P is in, in Tulip is the perseverance of the saints. Okay. And this is eternal security. There are, again, people in Arminianism that are split on this. Some say that, you know, the security is conditional and others say it is eternal. That if you are truly called and if you are truly penitent and if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will be saved and you will persevere to the end and you will hold the faith to the end and you will be saved. So perseverance of the saints is understood that way. That, you know, no matter what happens, you know, a Calvinist would say, well, you know, God says that, you know, um, no one can pluck you from my hand. Some Armenians would say, yeah, but you could walk out of that hand, walk right out of it. The, the security is conditional. What do you do about people who were Christians and then became atheists? Calvinists would say, well, they were never Christians to begin with. Well, what makes someone a Christian? Believing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins? What if they confess that and they really believe that? They truly did. 10, 20 years later, they don't anymore. They fight against it. They walk against it. They curse God. I know you could say, well, we still hold out hope or whatever. It doesn't matter how, how can you say that people who are not Christians are Christians? Scripture seems to say that there is this type of conditional security that, no, you run the good race. Run, run to the end. You fight to the end. You, you persevere. You push. We are, it, it's in our hands. We're doing this. In church history, you have stories of people who were Christians and stopped being Christians. Um, in the story of, I think it was uh, Pliny the Younger, whenever he was trying to find out for, I believe it was Emperor Trajan, about what Christians believed. And he had, um, you know, a couple women who were, they seemed to be Eucharistic ministers as best as I could understand it. Um, that you know, really believe that he tortured them to death to find out what they really believed and if they would lie. And they didn't. And he said, you know, in there, no, they believe that they're eating and drinking the you know, body and blood of Christ. And, you know, he talks about it and stuff. And he also says, I also went and I talked with people who used to be Christians about it. And there was one person he mentioned, the guy was, you know, a Christian for 20 years and stopped being a Christian for 10 years. He has been a Christian for 10 years. He, you know, gave it up and everything. And he said, no, yeah, that's what Christians believe. I used to be a Christian. No, they totally believe what you found out from them. So what do you do with people like that? What do you do with people like uh, Bart Ehrman, who, you know, was raised um, Episcopalian, I believe, you know, raised and had an evangelical uh, upbringing in that way. And he's now an agnostic, as he says, but probably more practically an atheist, in my opinion. But uh, let's stick with what he says. He's non-Christian. Let's just say that. But here's somebody who, you know, was. You have these stories. What do you say about that? You know, are they still Christian? Are they still going to heaven? Is that it? Is it just, you know, is, is Christianity just 
fire insurance in that way. When we look at, at Scripture, in 1 John um, chapter 5, verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will forgive him. Will will uh, and let me say that again. He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So it's possible for people to commit a sin that leads to death. And by saying it's a brother, it's a Christian that's doing it. Jesus also told the, the parable <coughs> that um, you had the, um, the people who were, you know, forgiven of, of what they owed. And the one, there was one, you know, slave who was forgiven for an amount that was just totally 100. I mean, it was, I'm trying to, uh, trying to say exactly not 100%, but like it was a, a, an amount that could not be paid back. It was impossible. All the money in the world would not have paid it back. And he was forgiven of this. And then he went and found a fellow slave who owed him like 10 bucks, some measly amount, like nothing. And, you know, beat him. And the guy was like, please, you know, have mercy on me. Like, I'll, I'll pay you back. And he had the guy thrown in jail. And when the other servants saw this, when the other slave saw this, they went to their master and told him. And the master said, bring him to me. And he said, he said, you wicked servant, I have forgiven you much. And here's somebody, you know, basically who owes just a little bit and you can't forgive them. You know what? Then you are getting thrown in jail and pretty much he throws them in jail. So here's an example in a parable that Christ gives of somebody who was forgiven. They didn't owe anything. The master forgave them. And yet because they didn't forgive others then they were cast out. They were thrown in jail. That is not an election that is, uh, you know, unconditional. That is very much conditional. Now, I might, I, I, I do want to touch a little bit in this um, time that we have left on the destiny of the unevangelized. Whenever we... I think that this is an important part of soteriology. And I, I, I want to wrap up by saying I hope I did a good job representing Arminianism there. Um, I hope I wasn't like too harsh on it or too contradictory or anything like that. I, I hope that, you know, I passionately was able to, to describe that. And if, you're, if you are an Arminian, send me an email and let me know, you know. But we've gone through all this and sometimes people ask, Okay, well, we have all these views here. What about people who have never heard? What do the different views say about that? And you may be able to figure it out, but with a little bit of time that I have left, I do want to kind of, you know, look over some of that stuff. Because there, there are a few views. Um, one of them is pluralism, and then the other one is exclusivism. And with it in exclusivism, there's a couple camps, all right? Pluralism is the belief that um, all belief systems ultimately point to the same direction, to the same God. Okay, even if the belief systems themselves are contradictory, it doesn't matter. They would say that, okay, 
you know, everybody that believes in God, they all believe in the same God. It's just a matter of, um, you know, what God they believe in. Okay. So they're all the same. Now we've known from our studies and from talking about that, that's just not the case because somebody saying that, you know, Jesus Christ is God in flesh and somebody saying Jesus Christ is not God in flesh is contradictory directly. Those two concepts cannot be reconciled. But some would say, well, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually what it is, even though there are those discrepancies, you know, we can, we can iron those out a little bit. Okay. So Christ is not needed in a pluralistic view. He's actually a hindrance to a pluralistic view. Now, exclusivism within Christianity here, that's the belief that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Every branch of Christianity believes in a form of exclusivism. Now, within exclusivism, there are two camps. There is inclusivism and restrictivism, okay? So, we're away from pluralism. Now, when you when I say inclusivism, I'm not saying pluralism. I'm saying within the understanding of a Christian worldview here. And inclusivism is the belief that Christ's atonement is the only way that anyone can be saved, but that the one does not necessarily need to have knowledge of Christ to have the atonement applied to them, okay? Now, we can argue this um, from, think of the theology pit way, okay? If we were saying that, you know, you, you have to have some certain type of knowledge in order for you to be saved, this can ring of stoicism, we have, or Gnosticism, we have to have secret knowledge. We have to that, or Manichaeanism, you know, we have to have the knowledge in order to do this sort of things. Even our definition of faith with notitia, knowledge being the first one, you know, census, the assenting to it and the fiducia, the trust in it. And that's what makes up faith. You know, we can't put that in there and say, all right, I understand that. The advocates of this, one of the biggest advocates of this would be Vatican II. Okay, and this was um, a, a Roman Catholic council from 1962 to 1964. And they said there that, but the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the creator, just in a generic sense. In the first place, among these, there are the Muslims who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham along with us, adore the one and merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. Those also can attain salvation who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Okay, so what this means is that Christ's death and Christ himself is ontologically necessary. Okay, what he did, his being, his presence, his dying on the cross, that that is necessary. But epistemologically, or the knowledge of it, the coming to the knowledge of that truth is not necessary to be saved. And you could say that, you know, the fullness of it, if you don't understand the fullness of it, well, we would all have to kind of fall under inclusivism here. All right. Restrictivism, on the other hand. 
is the belief that knowledge of and trust in the gospel is necessary for anyone to be saved. This is most evangelical Christians, all right? So restrictivism would say that Christ is needed ontologically, meaning his, his being, what he did, and epistemologically, knowledge of what he did. Now, what's interesting is that when Second Vatican Council said this, the church, Roman Catholic Church, especially in the um, 1600s, 1500s, um, boy, it had a huge evangelical effort. I mean, they were really going out. When you get friars where they were, you know, roaming around, you have all kinds of, of missionary works going. They were taking the gospel to, to China, to Japan. I mean, they were really like working towards it. So it kind of tells you the ebb and flow here of what's going on. Um, in restrictivism, there seems to just be that emphasis of the go, the tell people, um, you know, let them know. We have to go and tell them. How can people hear if they don't, you know, if nobody goes to tell them? There, There's this emphasis on spreading the gospel, not, you know, hiding it, not keeping it under a lamp, you know, anything of that uh, area. Um, so, again, pluralism, also known as universalism, um, and, and the universalist Unitarian churches, which are barely Christian, let's just let's just say that um, they would hold to, you know, Christ's death being somewhat necessary, but not really. Uh, but everybody's going to heaven. Um, I uh, like to think of myself sometimes as a closet universalist. I hope that I'm wrong and everybody goes maybe a closet like inclusivist in the way. But I am. I mean, I, I defi- I'm very much a restrictivist. I, I believe that, you know, people do need to hear the gospel. They do need to understand the gospel. And not that, you know, God can't save anyone, you know, outside of that, but just saying that the norm of the way God does things, it seems to be in the evangelical aspect of it, the go and the tell and the the delivering of the gospel and the people understanding it and accepting it. Now, along those lines, before my time runs out here, I got five minutes, so I'm really going to start confusing people. There is also the free grace view and the lordship salvation view. And the understanding between these two can be a difference between understanding Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay, so we'll stick with the Arminianism first, which is the Lordship Salvation view, all right? Um, and this would be people, and you can normally spot them because they are very um, evangelical and it's very big on witnessing. Um, Kirk Cameron is a very you know, famous person that is very big on the Lordship Salvation view. Uh, salvation includes both faith and repentance, which are two sides of the same coin. In repentance, the believer is committing to give up all known sin, thereby making Christ Lord of his or her life. It is, you know, you know, you have to turn away from your sin, confess your sins to God, ask for forgiveness, and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you will be saved. The free grace view is one that would be more um, Calvinistic, I would say. But again, you know, these those, those titles almost don't matter with this. Uh, salvation is by faith alone. Repentance and submitting to Christ's lordship is something that only a born-again believer can do, okay? So, the lordship view means that something has to take place within the person, and then 
uh, God accepts them. Okay. And it's God working the whole time. It is, it is grace. It is the Holy Spirit pulling them where the free grace view, this gets into the concept of, you know, are you born again before you believe God comes in, God changes you, God makes you right. And therefore you then have the ability to cry out. It is saying as though a child does not cry out for its parents until it's first been born. So when Christ said, you must be born again, they would say, yes, you are born from above. You are born again, born of the spirits, not of, not of flesh, not of uh, you know, water, but you are born of the spirit. And because of that, you can then cry out for mercy from God and you want to repent of your sins. Where the other ones would say, well, we don't tend to see that in scripture. It's always repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Okay, so if the Bible, you know, the New Testament keeps telling us repent and believe, maybe there's a little something to that. So I hope that didn't confuse everybody a lot, but that is kind of something that uh, we need to talk about. Maybe I should have brought up at another point and talked about it a little bit more, but um, we are almost completely done with our our series on salvation here. And um, I am going to talk about what I personally believe, and I'm going to walk through uh, what I believe and why and, and my soteriology and my order of salvation, my order salutis, and that'll be coming up soon. Um, I don't think that I have much more to get, you know, get in here. Uh, I might do some interviews with pastors of different denominations and ask them just could they explain the atonement and then let you listen to it and say, okay, I understand where they're coming from. Not to challenge them, but just to get an understanding that this is what churches believe these days. Hey, if you like the Theology Pit, please tell your friends, please tell your family, uh, share these podcasts around, um, share them on Facebook, put a nice note on, um, on like, you know, iTunes under the reviews and, um, you know, visit me at uh, Samson. Uh, samsonstick.com email me samson at samsonstick.com visit me on facebook at the theology pit Um, you know hey make a donation it's all appreciated all and every feedback and all the rss feeds i really appreciate Uh, thank you so much for this and now it is definitely time to close down the pit